Let's see messy fields as an opportunity as well to boost yields and let's find that balance. How much mess can we tolerate uh, to get the things we want? Hello, welcome to the Canola Watch podcast. My name is Jay Wetter, and our topic today is the value of non-farmed spaces within your fields. With me today are... My name is Paul Galper, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Calgary. I'm a landscape ecologist studying agroecosystems. Hi, I'm uh, Gregory Seklitz. I'm the agronomy and public affairs specialist for the Canola Council of Canada in the Peace Region of Alberta and British Columbia. And my area of interest is in sustainable production and beneficial insects. Yeah, we're really interested in, in understanding ecosystem services, particularly uh, the kinds of things that beneficial insects might do for farmers and, and how uh, spaces on fields or near fields can help boost those services, help, get farm, help farmers get more uh, services to their crop. Uh, is there a relationship with the, the patches, the, the messy bits in fields and uh, the services they might get? What do you define as these, these patches, these messy bits? What, I mean, how would a farmer know of them? I'm thinking shelter belts, fence lines, uh, sloughs maybe, wetlands. What, what's the list encompass? Well, that, that's the main list, exactly. All of those things, patches of forests in the fields, wetlands, uh, um, bits of uh, grassland that is uh, grass that isn't, is perennial. In other words, it's, it's, it's not tilled, it's there year after year. Uh, any of those kinds of things provide a sort of permanent home for different kinds of uh, insects that might be beneficial. And um, we're trying to understand how those different kinds of messy bits, those patches, might uh, provide different kinds of services and how much service they might provide. So the services provided then, from based on your research anyway, is that it's it's a an insect-based like the biodiversity of the insects within these areas where the real value comes? You know, I think there's probably other values as well. Um, the big one that we're interested in, though, is the one that's provided by insects or, or biodiversity in general. So you can imagine that, uh, you know, canola might benefit a little bit from insect visitation. Pollinators might come and uh, help increase uh, the seed set a little bit and in turn the yield. So how can we create homes for those uh, pollinators, many of which might be bees, um, in the field so they can get to the crop? Uh, so that's what we mean when we talk about uh, insects providing beneficial services, but not just pollination, of course. A, a big one as well is, is controlling pests, so natural pest control, things like beetles or uh, um, spiders that might um, make these patches their home uh, and then move into the crop uh, or spill over is the word we use into the crop to 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 do their business and so, additionally the, uh, the literally thousands of species of uh, parasitic wasps as well that uh, inhabit these these spaces and these and these messy areas that are uh, pretty specific for the the types of pests that they will feed and consume on it's actually pretty fascinating because the larval form of these wasps uh, do the damage to the pest species in most cases, but the adult forms tend to be nectar feeders. And so it becomes actually uh, pretty critically important for them to have some sort of a, a nectar bearing um, flower source in and around uh, fields to, to maintain background populations 
so that uh, they can parasitize it and help manage our, our insect pests. I interject here to comment that these spaces are also home for pest insects. I asked Greg, is it more important to remove these spaces to control pests or leave them as a home for beneficials? I would lean towards the latter in that particular explanation. Uh, the, the presence of the beneficials does does help manage the uh, the populations of the of the pest species. Uh, but if if that relationship were in fact uh, uh, critical, providing homes for for these pest species. Uh, we, we would certainly see that showing up in, in field analysis, and, and the global literature really does reject that notion. Uh, and this and this isn't really contentious data. Um, this does go back to the 50s and the the analysis of shelter belts, for example, where we do see a little bit of yield decline right adjacent to the the, the tree line, but the net benefit that that uh, that that tree line brings in in increased yield further away far outweighs the the potential loss from. Uh, from either like the opportunity cost of farming acres or the pest species that could conceivably inhabit it. Well, you know, of course, when you keep one of these habitats on the field, you may be keeping a few bad guys, but you're also keeping the other members of that uh, community of animals, if you will, or that ecosystem that might help keep those bad guys in check. So it's, it's you're, you're getting the whole business with one of these habitats. So in the end, um, as, as, as Greg says, that there, there is a balance and where our hope is that that balance is clearly tilted towards the beneficials, and that in turn is going to spill over. Uh, and I, I, you know, really like that that literature that Greg refers to. You know, that as you move further out away from a shelter belt, initially you're going to get um, a reduced yields or reduced effect in the field because there's a competition effect uh, with the natural vegetation, and that's an edge effect that farmers see on all of their fields, right there at the very edge, at the boundary of the field, um, because the plants might be competing with one another, or in the case of a wetland, it might just be too wet. But as you move further into the field, what we expect to see, and that shelter belt research shows us that, is we expect to see this little peak, this bump, and let's call it a proximity effect. It's because it's this, it's a service effect. It's something that is being provided from a nearby habitat. Uh, and our goal is to try and quantify how much we get and how that depends on things like the size of that habitat or the type of that habitat uh, and try and understand general themes um, so we can provide guidance to farmers. Is there any guidance you can provide based on what you know now, or is it is it too early in the research to say how how many acres per quarter are best, or what type of space like of these these natural spaces, whether a wetland or a, a forest or whatever, what what are which are best? Is are there any details you can provide at this time? Well, I think we can go from first principles and say um, that we expect there to be an optimum. So in other words, you can't just keep uh, adding more of these messy bits to your fields, more wetlands, uh, more patches, more trees. It's going to reach a point where it's going to start declining, because if you have, uh, uh, if you put more of these in, you're creating more edge, and the more edge you have, we know you're going to have more of this uh, lower yielding areas at the proximity to the edge. So finding that optimum point, that sweet spot where you have just enough that you're actually increasing your yield per acre, but you're not uh, uh, losing out. So in other words, is there a point where you break even 
uh, and in fact, even uh, more than that, you're improving your yields. And finding that is actually a, a challenging piece of work. Um, so what we do know um, in terms of pollinators and also in terms of spiders, as you move away from a prairie wetland, you're going to get less of those things in your trap. You're going to get fewer as you move out into the field. So that implies that these uh, habitats, wetlands or sloughs are kind of like hot spots for these animals. The next step though is to ask, is there a hot spot effect in terms of yield? Uh, and we do know that there, there, there is a small effect of pollination on canola. So if we've got more bees, uh, potentially we could be getting more yield, but teasing those patterns out is going to take a lot more data, but we're heading that way. I, from a farmer's perspective, you can see, given machinery size and, and wanting to reduce overlap and that kind of thing, you can see the logistical or the cost incentives to start removing some of these areas. Greg, can you comment on, on, on how the farmer might think through you know, the cost or the benefit from a logistical perspective? Well, from a logistical perspective, uh, we do see uh, a lot of these um, the, these wetlands and, uh, and natural spaces as, as obstacles, quite frankly. And when we're starting to see equipment that uh, exceeds like 50, 60, and, and 70 feet for uh, seeding equipment and in excess of 100 feet for, for spraying equipment, uh, it does become uh, problematic to, to move and, and, and turn around them. Um, and we do recognize that. And there are efficiencies to be gained on equipment to uh, to being able to complete a straight long pass with a wide piece of, of equipment and have fewer overlaps like these these things actually that uh, do make good ecological sense in in many cases uh, but i guess i, I really want to emphasize that that need for balance that uh, that paul has has characterized so so beautifully and that is uh, just basically uh you know maintaining maintaining what's there and uh, ideally even enhancing some of it if uh, if that's possible so for example um, it's with the advent of the uh, precision guidance on on seating equipment uh, we now have like essentially no overlaps as a move across a square fat field and then we get into the last pass in the field and it'll be quite common to have you know uh, half or, or even more of that uh, that tool overlapping on on the basically the final pass on the field so what might be a practical solution to all of these is instead of uh, having that, that extra overlap to half pass with either under fertilized or under sprayed uh, bits or, or, or double apps, uh, we could actually just extend out the field margin, for example, finish the field on one even uniform pass and uh, provide, you know, some space for these, for these beneficial insects and, uh, and, uh, and even uh, the, the, the shelter belt. And I can envision a time, maybe in the near future, where we're maybe using some automated or driverless equipment that could be smaller and more easily work around some of these spaces. Paul, what's the next phase? So I think Precision Ag is, is uh, really a powerful, uh, it's a tool also to understand fields and, and these services and these habitats. And so that's uh, my research group is really uh, hoping to leverage um, a large uh, data set of, of uh, yield data. So information coming off um, the, the, the sensor on the harvester, 
uh, how much uh, uh, using GPS information, how does that uh, relate to the proximity to, to field edges, to these features? I see uh, precision ag as being not just a, a, a way to make messy fields viable uh, for the farmer, whether that's through autonomous uh, means or, or others that Gregory mentioned, but it's also a source of a really valuable source of data. I grew up in southwest Manitoba where there are a lot of the hunt farm spaces. Um, it's It would seem that for, for large parts of the prairies, that these spaces are there already. It's not like uh, we need to create them. And it's more that farmers just uh, get an appreciation for, for the value they may be providing, values that they might not have thought about before. I think one of the analogies that I, that I would draw is, um, is instead of looking at these as, as an obstacle, look at them as a, as a source of revenue. Um, I'm from you know, oil-rich Alberta, where there's a lot of uh, oil pads and uh, leases extending out into fields. And yeah, they're, they're obstacles, but they're also generating revenue. Well, the other way to look at these, uh, these you know, wetlands and, and um, forested bluffs and, and fence rows um, and grasslands is as, uh, as, as sources of revenue, but instead of a direct check into your, your bank account, uh, it does provide an increased yield potential for all of the space around it. Uh, there's lots of stories in Europe of people planting flowers beside fields to attract more pollinators and that in turn helps the crop. Uh, you know, and that the supplementation, that, that costs money. Uh, and then there's the, the, the re-establishment of, of, for example, new wetlands or, or even planting shelter belts. Those things all, all do cost more. But the, the, the lowest hanging fruit and the one that I think is the most likely to be implemented is just to keep those things in place. Retention is the key word that I like to use. Let's keep as many of these features on the field as we can tolerate uh, and let's start value, valuing them as, as Gregory says. To each of you, is there one wrap up point or a key point that you'd like to emphasize? If you've ever witnessed a carabid beetle uh, ripping a cutworm apart, uh, it's dramatic, it's vicious, it's horrific, and they also occupy these uh, natural spaces that are undisturbed. I've got videos if you, uh, if you want me to pass them on. I can tell you that we have found lots of carabid beetles in these unfarmed spaces, uh, literally uh, thousands of them per space. So um, there's a lot of hope for that. Yeah, it's very exciting. I guess my final message would be, um, you know, messy fields uh, obviously present challenges to um, cultivation, to seeding. But what about, uh, uh, but also let's see mess as an opportunity. Let's see messy fields as an opportunity as well to boost yields. Um, and let's find that balance. How much mess can we tolerate uh, to get the things we want? Thanks, guys. This has been a Canola Watch podcast with Gregory Sekulich from the Canola Council of Canada and Paul Galpern with the University of Calgary talking about the benefits of a little bit of mess in your fields. If you saw my desk, you might be able to draw some sort of analogy there. <laughs> I, I heard I heard one someone say once that you're, yeah, if you have a messy desk, you have a clear mind, and I keep trying to cling to that notion. Thanks for listening. I'm Jay Wetter.